Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today is religious liberty, and our guest is Kelly Shackelford, who has um, been involved in religious liberty cases now for how long, Kelly? 25 years, over 25 years. 25 years. So talk a little bit about your background and how you came into um, getting involved with cases on religious liberty. Well, back for me, it really goes back to even in high school. In high school, I you know analyzed my gifts and thought, really realized my gifts were in analytical thinking and speaking, and I thought, well... With that set of gifts, I either need to be a pastor or a lawyer, and uh, people thought that was kind of a God or Satan choice, you know, the pastor or lawyer. <laughs> and uh, as you know, I talked to my youth pastor, and he said, "Well, you'll, I'll, I'll tell you this: um, if you're called to be a minister, it's a wonderful calling. Uh, but we do have a lot of Christian ministers, and you know, we sure could use some more Christian lawyers." And as I really analyzed my DNA and sort of how God had made me. I thought I was probably better on the law side. I felt a little more called to the law. I don't, I don't know how good of a counselor I would have been. Uh-huh. Uh, and really felt like law was where I was really being called. So I went to law school, and but my heart was still uh, you know, for ministry. So even while I was at law school, I spent a lot of my time leading the discipleship ministry for the college students at my church and, mm-hmm. and really didn't study as much as the other people did. And uh, – and, you know, entered with average intelligence compared to the rest of the students. It's really kind of a bad approach, but I was making all the high grades. Mm. And it was just the Lord's way to show me, use your legal skills, but, you know, combine with ministry. And so when I got out, I clerked for a federal judge, which you do for a year. You Mm -hmm. sort of help research and write opinions. You know what it's like on the other side of the bench. And you get all these really nice offers to come work for the big law firms because they want the people who have that understanding of what it's like, Mm -hmm. what influences, what doesn't. And I had all those offers, and I just thought, you know, I think I'd suffocate going mm. into the regular law thing. I just don't feel like that's what I'm called to do. And so I thought, well, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I want to use my legal skills, but I want to help pastors and churches and religious freedoms and our founding principles. And, and I'd even like to go to seminary part-time. <laughs> uh-huh. And I thought, well, there's no job to pay you to do any of that stuff. And about two weeks later, two guys called me with major law firms. I'd never met these guys before in my life. And they they said, will you go to lunch? And I said, sure. And they said, look, uh, we started donating our time for religious freedom. We're getting so many calls now. It's hurting our ability to make a living. And so we were wondering, would you be willing to come on, do legal cases, help pastors, churches, religious freedoms, our founding principles, and you can even go to seminary part-time if you want to. Mm. And that was 25 years ago, and those guys paid me out of their pocket. I was making 28,000 as a clerk, so I didn't, you know, have uh-huh. a huge upkeep at the time. And um, and 25 years later, Liberty Institute's the largest legal organization in the country that focuses exclusively on religious liberty in the United States. So, so, so you run Liberty Institute, basically. I do, and uh, so it's it's one of those American stories of something that didn't exist that God created because I think He knew we were especially now going to mm-hmm. need it because. Mm-hmm. It's, it's never been to the level of attack and case levels that, that we're having to do now. 
So you've been involved in religious liberty for some time. Now let's talk a little bit about where the concept of religious liberty comes from, because uh, when we look at the Constitution, of course, we're dealing with the Bill of Rights, and I'm going to keep this real basic for people, because some people understand this and some people don't. But So which amendment of the Bill of Rights are we dealing with here when we talk about religious liberty? Well, both uh, of the clauses, the first two clauses in the First Amendment. Okay. So which Congress shall make no law respecting and establishing establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So the purpose of those was the fullest and most vibrant free exercise of religion without the government establishing for us uh, some sort of you know denomination or religion, which therefore would take away from our full free exercise. So the idea is uh, the founders wanted there to be freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, and so they the first two clauses of the First Amendment are dedicated to protecting, you know, that very freedom, the the first freedom, freedom of religion. And that was a very unique kind of move in forming a government at the time at which it was done, wasn't it? Absolutely. And the founders wrote about uh, – they called it the first freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what they – you know, in the first liberty. And the reason for that is and, – and I'll – because a lot of times I'll talk about religious freedom to audiences that maybe they're not religious people. Mm-hmm. And so the natural question that comes is – well, should I care about this? Mm-hmm. And the fa- yeah, answer is yes. The founders wrote on this, and the, the concept is it's the first liberty because if you don't have it, you won't have any liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, when you talk about freedom of religion, really it's about the right of a person to, to their conscience. And if the government can violate that mm-hmm. – you know, and it could be your belief in not believing in God. Mm-hmm. Um, once you've sort of crossed that threshold, it's all gone. And I think a good way for people to understand it is the, when totalitarianism comes in, the one thing that totalitarianism can never allow are citizens who, who have an allegiance to one higher than the government. Mm-hmm. So when totalitarian comes in, it's always going to – you're going to see religious freedom as the first attack mm. because they're going to say, wait – your allegiance is not to the government, and you will see these types of, of fights. And so the founders understood. And, I, and I, when I speak, I have a lot of people from other countries who've come to the United States, and they say, you know, I'm not religious. You don't know how true this is. When you lose religious freedom, you'll lose all your freedom. And yeah. I think that's what the founders understood. Yeah, the importance of conscience is important. Also, the importance to the founders of, of just having a discussion in the public square of what virtue is mm-hmm. and what religion contributes to virtue. I, I've just, I'm actually in the process of working on a book myself on biblical values and political issues. And um, Michael Novak wrote a book called On Two Wings, which is a very good treatment of, of the influence of the Enlightenment and the influence of, of, of religious commitment in, in our founding, and those are the two wings. Yes. And, um, and it's an interesting combination because most people think the Enlightenment and religious belief work against one another, right. but in this particular case, uh, they worked alongside one another. They made a big point – he makes a big point, for example, of how you have Thomas Jefferson who 
isn't exactly the most orthodox right. uh, religious figure in the history of the country, and John Adams, who uh, you know f- helped to form this government and and put together this combination of rights and privileges that that uh, allow us, on the one hand, to have a government that we're committed to, and on the other hand, to keep our freedom of conscience. So it's a very very foundational and important area. It, it was unique at the time. It was designed to protect I – mean, I think we have to be honest about this – it was designed to protect a reaction that the Founding Fathers had to being under a king and, being, uh, and having a state church. Uh, so it was protecting that. It was a protection against uh, the bad side of religion, if I can say it that way, that it led to many uh, religious conflicts, bloody religious yes. conflicts in Europe in mm-hmm. its history. I tell people, you know, if you go through a 30 years, years war and that's not even the bad one, you've got a 100 years war that comes alongside <laughs> of it, then, then you can understand why there were efforts to marginalize aspects of religion. But it was never the intent to remove religious reflection. No. Uh, from our society and from our public square. That's right. I mean, that you know, it's it's funny. We're talking about this, and we can talk about this later. But we're talking about this today when the Supreme Court issued a decision um, about prayer, mm-hmm. and the main, really, the, the the guts of the decision, if you look at it very quickly, is how can we say that this is unconstitutional when this is the essence of what the founders exactly did? I mean, this is what they did when they passed the Constitution. They, they had prayer. Yeah. They, they established a chaplain the same day that was paid from the federal treasury to say prayers. Mm-hmm. So they clearly – this idea that you know, our Constitution or our founders you know, established something to sort of – you know, push religion to the corners, and oh, we're not going to be religious. That that's that's really, you you have to try to change what this country is, its history. It's just they wanted religious freedom for everybody in that context. They didn't have the problem with the government being pro-religious in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just wanted everybody uh, to have the freedom between them and God to live out their faith in their own conscience. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to deal with that, we probably ought to take some white out to the Constitution and wipe out the word creator. Yes. <laughs> There's a declaration. They don't like that. I mean, yeah. because the way these people often read the two clauses is they read the Establishment Clause in such a uh, – a bizarre fashion that they say that the government can't be pro-religion in general. And well, the problem with that is then that means that the free exercise clause, which is pro-religion in general, uh-huh. would be unconstitutional. Right, right. Um, the founders weren't, you know, they, they, they didn't want the government really telling any of us what to believe, but they didn't have a problem with the government being, you know, pro-religion, like having a chaplain uh, so that there would be prayers. I mean, our first military, George Washington, you know, had chaplains in our military, uh, you know, made Bibles available for all the soldiers. I mean, so uh, again, I, I think – I wish people were honest in saying, well, that's not what the Constitution says or what the founders did, but I want to change the country to something new. That would be fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, the truth is – and I, we've got a lot of these monuments cases where they're attacking religious monuments. And what I try to tell people is, look, you know, we're a, hi- a country with a, a history of both secular and religious, kind of like you're talking about, mm-hmm. both the Enlightenment and uh, and, a, and a more biblical framework mm-hmm. all coming together. And so guess what? When you look around for monuments, you'll see secular monuments and religious monuments. And that's who we are as a people. It's okay. Mm-hmm. And this idea that you're supposed to sniff around and find the religious monuments and, you know, tear them down 
is is nowhere in the law, uh, although it's what is being attempted in the law. You know, it's interesting, and, and this you've led into my next question, uh, and that is, you know, how do we deal with the rights and sensitivities of someone who isn't religious in the context of our public square, which is designed to be diverse? I, mean, I think we have to be honest about that. And so, um, how do we how do we deal with that? And my initial reaction is to say, well, I, if someone's an atheist, I'm not inherently offended by that. That's their choice. Um, uh, and hopefully they'll recognize the same thing for me for being a religious person. It seems to me that that is how it was designed to function versus some absolutely. other. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And, uh, and so you provide freedom for everybody to, to their own beliefs, to their own expression. Uh, but there's this, this, I don't know, this new sort of intolerance. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, I have a right – well, there's a group that calls himself the Freedom From Religion Foundation, mm-hmm. and they run around the country, you know, filing letters and trying to really change the country. Well, I mean, as, as somebody who practices this area, it's just such a foolish, you know, phrase. Mm-hmm. There's no freedom from religion if there's freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. There's no freedom from speech. If there's freedom of speech, you know, I mean, the whole point of living in a free society is you hear things that you disagree with, mm-hmm. and that's okay. That people have a right to express things you disagree with, and that includes religious things that you disagree with. Right. So to have freedom of religion means citizens don't have some sort of right to be free from hearing about other people's religion. They're going to in a free society where the exchange of ideas occurs, uh, and this attempt to sort of push it into the outskirts, and they do it through different ways, sometimes much more subtly than others. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the favorites is the use of the term, which is, of course, not in the Constitution, but the, the concept of separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. But then they read that in a, a, a really wooden, kind of bizarre way to mean that everywhere the government is, religion can't be there. Mm-hmm. Well, the government's everywhere. So mm-hmm. what that would essentially <laughs> mean is religion goes into the corners of society mm-hmm. and religious expression in the corners of society. And that is what some people really want. They, they want religious freedom to mean you have the right to your religion in your church, in your synagogue, and in your home, mm-hmm. and that's it. And so things like you know, you know, being able to exercise your faith in your, in your workplace or, you know, I mean, they, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what we're seeing these cases on, you know, mm. Hobby Lobby and others. Right. I mean, that's what these cases are really ultimately about. We're representing people as Christians who – are losing their job because they're living their faith out in their workplace, which is against the law. We have laws protecting against that. But this is this whole philosophy that wants to sort of – they think the country would be better if religion was removed from public society. And it's amazing because, again, if you look at the history of our country, you can look at uh, – there's a very famous citation from George Washington in his farewell address talking about how uh, important uh, virtue and religion is to the, to the stability of a society. You've got John Adams making this same point uh, as one of the founders. Uh, Thomas Jefferson makes the same point, even though he, as we've already said, isn't necessarily an Orthodox Christian. People see the value of the pursuit of virtue as a as a as a stabilizing force in the in the culture, and yet uh, we've got this push to kind of almost have anything goes, which is uh, which actually is uh, it, it it may to some people's minds protect uh, protect them, but it actually undermines the society that that, that they um, that they are a part of. No, that's exactly right, and that's what's so funny about these these cases. If if these folks ever got what they really wanted. 
what they'd really have is the government having power over people's conscience. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, freedom from religion. You know, if the government could could you know tell us that we're not going to talk about religion in public. I mean, we've given an incredible power to the government mm-hmm. over. Uh, you know the the marketplace of ideas and and people's conscience and expression and uh, and it, what what they don't understand is for the atheists they lose freedom too mm-hmm. when that happens because the government power that has just been given will be used against them as well so we really all should be for full vibrant religious freedom uh, for those of faith and those that don't have faith at all uh, now as Christians we believe that. We don't need an unfair advantage because uh, all we need is you know freedom to speak the truth and let you know the Holy Spirit and God uh, do what He will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that's that's the fight. It seems like people want to kind of you know push it to the corners, or uh, some people want to use the government for you know their religion in a in a way like we talked about earlier. To you know, uh, you think especially some of the Muslim countries where there's just a complete meshing of government and mm-hmm. and religion, and certainly there's not religious freedom in those places. That's a very different idea from ours. And I'll tell you one of the things that people miss a lot. One of the things so unique about our country and what you're talking about about sort of this the Enlightenment and as well as the biblical values that that came in is. That that leads to sort of a central core idea in our country that freedoms, our freedoms, our liberties come from God, mm-hmm. and no government can take them away. That makes us very unique. Very, I mean, you know, you go around the world and find mm-hmm. countries that believe that, um, and I think that's what sort of contributes a lot to this sort of. I don't know, uh, renegade spirit, uh, Mm -hmm. this sort of independent mindset, America, uh, that says, you know, you're not going to take my liberty. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's a very healthy thing for a free society, and I think it's really unique. But I think ultimately it comes from that idea right at the beginning of the Declaration of Independence that these rights come from our Creator. Mm -hmm. And it's on that presupposition that the nation is built. It says, I think the next line is our foundations are built. It's And so that's where it starts. It starts with God giving us liberty, not government. Mm-hmm. And then the, the government is built upon that truth. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Yeah, it is an interesting starting point, and it, it uh, the you know so if someone just sits down and reads the Declaration of Independence, they I mean that document really is a justification for why. The country declared independence, and it's almost a justification before God, and and I think the phrase in the Declaration is a providence. I think that's how they talk about God. Um, and, and there is also writing on the other end of it when when the 
when the colonies came to see how they how they were successful in the War of Revolution, they talk about Providence a lot as well. And, and um, I don't want to get into a kind of manifest destiny point of view, but there is very much the sense that that uh, what was taking place was taking place before God, with God's awareness. And um, if we had the wall of separation built as some would have it, um, then uh, when we go back and read our history, we not only would have to take wide out to certain portions of the Declaration of Independence, we have to take wide out to whole portions of the explanation of what was going on. No, you're exactly right. And I, I you know, I just, I think it takes an incredible. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's not faith. It's uh, I, I don't know, something. It it I can't imagine. You know, you read the book, read something like 1776. Mm-hmm. I mean, not a not a Christian book, mm-hmm. just written on the history of what happened in 1776 by McCullough. Mm-hmm. Uh, excellent. You know, it was a bestseller and everything. I mean, you can't help but see God's hand. I mean, we should not be here as a nation. Right. I mean, our army. Was uh, a joke somewhat, mm-hmm. uh, and and the things that happened to allow for victory. I think, you know, our founders all were very, very much believed that this was a miracle of God that this nation even came into existence, mm-hmm. fighting the most powerful army in the world with with very little. So I, I think that that imbues through everything they do, and that is why you had, you know great times of prayer in the legislature. That is why they established chaplains. Um, so again, there's there's a great religious heritage and religious history in our country. The great thing about it is it's not like some other you know countries and, and other religions, to be honest, that what they do when they infuse that with the government is they take away people's freedoms. I think the Judeo-Christian you know, mindset and philosophy that believes that really your, your faith is between you and God. Mm-hmm is what really is behind giving freedom to everybody, no matter what their faith is or even if they have no faith at all. Yeah, well, it's an important area, and I think that if you learn to equate freedom of religion and freedom of conscience and recognize that those two things very much go together, then there there shouldn't be any sense of feeling threatened about the fact that, that this right exists and that it's a very important part of the way our country is structured. Okay, well, that kind of lays the background and the foundations for what we're going to talk about. You're here because you work in this area, you've worked the law in this area, and, and for some people, law is just a very strange part of the <laughs> part of existence. Uh, so, uh, so help help us make sense out of this. Um, when when did when did the effort start to to work on uh, First Amendment issues, and and what have we seen in the last say several uh, decades that uh, that has changed the nature of the conversation? Well, I, I think what happened, to be honest, is uh, sort of we we got asleep at the wheel a little bit. Hmm. Uh, you kind of assume uh, that things are going to continue as they were. Where there were other groups that have very different agendas, and so there were there were groups forming in the early 1900s to begin to take the country in a different direction on some of these issues, especially on religious freedom, mm-hmm. to uh, to move towards what you would call a strict separation, to uh, you know really uh, sort of push religion to outside the public square, um, and certainly nowhere near anywhere that government is, and so you had for decades, groups like the ACLU and others that had an agenda they were trying to accomplish, and literally no one on the other side. Mm-hmm. 
And so while they lost most of those cases, every once in a while they'd win one. Mm -hmm. And then they would eventually win another Mm -hmm. and win another. And you start to build some things that way. And so it really was a long time. We started to see, I think, the law move, especially in the 60s, -hmm. uh, in a direction that was not really true to what the founders and the Constitution meant, but they didn't have as much sort of intellectual firepower on the other side of the briefing. And I think eventually that started to move back, I'd say, in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. There were groups uh, you know, that do like what I do mm-hmm. that started to be involved, provide better you know, scholarship. There were also professors, uh, you know, law professors writing on some of these things. And I, and I include in that not just people who are religious law professors, because most of them probably aren't. There are people who are agnostic and others, but who understand religious freedom and began to write on it and how important it was and how we had sort of missed the mark a little bit on what some of the directions we were going. So I would say that for a good while there, we really were moving in in a bad direction and really pulling back on religious freedom and somewhat trying to deny our heritage uh, uh, that we – we do have a religious history and religious heritage in this country. Nothing wrong with that Mm -hmm. as long as you provide freedom for everybody. Uh, and I, th- I think we've started to get that back. But I-, I say that as a guy who's been doing this for 25 years, the last – it's really ticking up the attacks. Mm-hmm. And there's really a, a, you know, a movement afoot of people who and, – and I think maybe it comes from sort of a uh, uh, – uh, you know, a belief, you know, that the the non-moral absolutes crowd, mm-hmm. and uh, they just don't want to hear uh, those kinds of concepts and phrases. And so they're literally trying to shut things down. And and the uptick in the attacks, I know we have a – we just do a survey of all the, the challenges across the country, every attack on religious freedom, and there's about 10 a page on this, and it's just hmm. – it's beyond what you can even believe. And this was double – from the year before, hmm. the number. And it includes everything from an eight-year-old boy caught in his classroom praying over his meal at the lunch cafeteria, taken to the principal's office and told to never do that again, to senior citizens told that their meals were going to be taken away because they were federally funded and they were praying over their meals, and that violated separation of church and state. Oh, my goodness. And so you see how – I mean, it can be young, it can be old, it can be the north, the south. It's every situation now. There's literally nowhere to avoid these kinds of situations. You, know, you could go into a retirement home. It, you know, there's plenty of retirement home cases <laughs> yeah. about somebody tries to put up a Christmas decoration and there's a lawsuit to, you know, oh, no, we're not going to allow you to, even though it's a government-run facility. And so these are the type of things that are happening now, and it's just at a level I've never seen. And I've even seen it in the past year or so especially move to something I really am uncomfortable with, which is away from sort of a what you can do to now a an attack on what you believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen that in a number of different cases. Um, we have, uh, we have, for instance, a, a well-known sports broadcaster who got a job uh, working for a major network, uh, did a fabulous job, and then was fired. And when was asked why I was fired, this is what they told the newspaper. It was that they had found out that when he ran for office two years earlier, he'd been asked about marriage, and his answer about what he believed about marriage was that God says that marriage is a man and a woman. And that was the reason. They said that those kind of views didn't play well in their L.A. human you know, resources uh, department. And mm. so he was fired not because of anything he did, mm-hmm. but because 
of his beliefs, his mm-hmm. religious beliefs that had nothing to do with his job performance. And so I could give you a lot of those examples, yeah, well, but it's that kind of conscience thing that I find really disturbing because it's it's not even well, you're doing something, and then I say, well, I'm doing it because of religion. That's the typical case. And they go, well, you know, we don't care why you're doing it. We're not going to allow you to do this. That's different from the government or coming to you or employers coming to you and saying, I'd like to know what you believe, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to treat you differently based upon what your religious beliefs are. That's, that's something that uh, is very new, I think, in the last few years. Interesting. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's kind of work our way up to where we are. Um, I suspect that if you ask most people about this who know a little bit about it, that the first case that they would bring up would be the prayer in school case from the 60s involving Madeline Marie O'Hare. So my question to you is, is, is that was that really the, the first grant-breaking case, or was there something before that? No, really the first case was uh, a case uh, in 1947 called Everson. Hmm. And it's one of those things that in law you understand, is sometimes you can win a case, mm-hmm. but if the rationale that's laid down is is not you know thought through very well mm-hmm. it can be sort of the ticking time bomb that's going to you know really be a disaster in the future mm. that's sort of what happened in Everson in mm. Everson and to be honest with you some of this is a result and there's been some books written on this and, and it, it sort of it won't surprise most Christians cuz i mean there's a majority of Christians in this country so you'd think they'd be pro religious freedom mm-hmm. well the reason for some of this conflict that happened with the Everson case is that the the Protestants and the Cat Protestants were kind of not liking the Catholics, mm-hmm. and so you know most schools were somewhat Protestant school, mm-hmm. and the kind of uh, the pub if you went to the public school you were basically at a Protestant school. If you went to the private religious school you were probably at the Catholic school. Mm-hmm. And so what this case was about was it was a. Uh, a program that was done so that people could get a, uh, uh, you know, they could have a little bit of help on getting their kids to a private school hmm. with transportation, with hmm. busing and things. And there was an argument, well, that's unconstitutional. Well, some of the people behind this argument that was unconstitutional, it was, you know, justices included later, it turned out, were just anti Catholic. Hmm. Uh, uh, but this is sort of the case that, that brought up, well, is it what if you have a, a program that says, look, anybody who goes, who, you know, since we pay for public schools and you pay for them with your taxes, mm-hmm. if you're paying again to go to a private school, you know, and it's education, it's a good thing, we will give you a little bit of a write off on your taxes for your, your transportation. Uh, I mean, you know, there's nothing religious about that. That's mm-hmm. for anybody, whatever school they go to, whatever, in this case, nonprofit private school they go to, um, that should have been a neutral thing that was okay. But what they did in the decision, and they ended up saying it was okay. Mm -hmm. They said it wasn't unconstitutional. It didn't violate the Establishment Clause. But they laid out what they said the Establishment Clause meant. Mm -hmm. And when they did, they used some language that was really extreme. Mm. Uh, And actually, if they'd have followed their own language, they'd have struck it down. (laughs) But they said the Establishment Clause essentially – and I I don't want to go through all of it, but essentially they said – if the government aids religion, then it violates the Establishment Clause. Hmm. Well, you know, guess what's going to happen down the line? Anything where the government is doing something that aids religion in general is a violation of the Establishment Clause. So now you have the prayer cases, the Engel mm-hmm. uh, versus Shemp case and uh, the Madeline Murray O'Hare case, and, and those come up. and. 
it's prayer. And they say, well, you know, that's anytime the government does anything that aids religion, and so they struck that down. And that's what started a lot of the other cases that came. They came uh, cases where you, you literally couldn't uh, provide textbooks, you know, secular textbooks that were used in the public schools, you couldn't, you couldn't provide those same textbooks to private schools that were religious schools because that would consider a violation because you were aiding religion by providing these these, these wonderful resources yeah. for these schools. <laughs> so it, it got really extreme, and it, it and again, there's a whole litany of cases that mm-hmm. was struggling through this. And then what eventually the court did is it came back to, um, I would say, a more rational approach. I still don't think it's probably constitutionally the. Mm-hmm. right on line, but what they said is neutrality. As mm-hmm. long as the government is neutral, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Neutral between religion and non-religion. They're not doing something to, to pump up a religion or whatever. So, for instance, like in the school bus deals, that would have been okay because it didn't matter if you're a religious school or not. Everybody got the transportation vouchers or mm-hmm. the transportation write-offs. Uh, and so it would apply to any sort of government funding or, or these type of issues. And so it began to move back, I think, in a in a more rational way, but probably still not uh, where the founders were because, again, the founders weren't – I mean, didn't have a problem with uh, money going to, re- to some sort of religion in general. Uh, for instance, having a chaplain. Mm-hmm. I mean, that chaplain you know, was paid by federal treasury money. Um, but and they considered him the chaplain for everybody, even though he was of a particular faith mm-hmm. and a particular denomination. Uh, they just saw it as sort of religion in general being a good thing for the country, and uh, they always wanted everybody to have their own individual freedom. But they didn't see a problem with the government supporting religion in a general way. So, uh, uh, as you were saying this, the the coins of, of our currency <laughs> flash into my mind, and I wonder: Do we go from "In God We Trust" to just "We Trust"? Yeah, <laughs> that way. You know, there's been a number of lawsuits on that, yeah. and there's been a number of lawsuits on the Pledge of Allegiance, which mm-hmm. says "Under God." Right. Um, and uh, again, we've we've been we've had two of those lawsuits ourselves, and you know, we've won all those. Mm-hmm. But that again, that's what the other side wants, and that's what they're trying to do with the lawsuits. That's just really not. I mean, you know, if they can find a judge, judges that want to do that, you know, then maybe they'll win someday. But uh, I hope we never get there because that's that's really not what the Constitution says. It's not, and it's what Justice Kennedy says, and I agree with him. Would be sort of creating a hostility to religion. Mm-hmm. And of course, the founders never wanted a hostility to religion. This sort of secular state that was hostile to religion. In fact, they were very much the opposite. They were very friendly to mm-hmm. religion. They just didn't want to take sides. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to say this denomination over this one, or we now have the Church of America, or you know, they didn't want to do that. That because they came out of that, and that would restrict on freedom of every individual to choose their own faith uh, in accordance to their own conscience. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Join us next week for part two. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Love well.